0: into the podcast of Williamsburg Christian Church, a community of faith joining God's pursuit of restoring lives. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. If you have your Bibles, John chapter 2, John chapter 2. You know, speaking of all this activity and program, we church folk, we have a bit toward religious activity, don't we? I mean, Christians have a bent toward religious activity. Sometimes churches become very program or activity centric. And so, you know, programs are necessary because they do things, too. Don't get me wrong. They they do things. They draw us together like our fall kickoff. Fall kickoff last night was incredible. We had more people this year than we did last year at fall kickoff, and it was so exciting to see all the kids, all like 1,000 of them running around and and playing and, and having a good time and all the adults talking and new and old. It was just really old and young. It was just, it was a really beautiful thing. And then we have other programs, like where we serve uh, the city, where we're on mission together, like what we did at Grove Thursday night, and had a great turnout. 30-plus people showed up from our fellowship, and thank God we were able to fill holes that other volunteers uh, weren't able to fill. And so it was a beautiful, beautiful thing. Uh, Over 800 hot dogs were served at Grove, uh, Grove Christian Outreach. You know, Dave and and Aaron were chef masters there, um, grilling and cutting breads and sweating and handing hot dogs to people, and it was just it was a good time. So programs and activities aren't a bad thing. The problem with programs and activities is sometimes the activities themselves, they lack a sense of fun. I mean, they lack a sense of celebration. It's a, they lack a sense of party, a sense of good time. Somehow we've, we've bought into this idea that when Christians come together, if we're not singing Kumbaya and having a devotional, then we're not allowed to come together. Like it's not a church sanctioned activity unless there's some sort of real sort of spiritual component to it. That's how we do it. We dichotomize the Christian life from spiritual to physical, secular to sacred, which is not really healthy theology anyhow. But what we do is we think, well, when we get together, since we're church folk, we gotta have a devotional or or we gotta sing some songs. Nothing wrong with that. But for some of us, and maybe for all of us, and maybe for a few of us, that becomes the sum total of what it means to get together. My question is, whatever happened to being together just to be together? Like Whatever happened to being together just to celebrate, just to talk and love each other and develop deeper relationships and hear what God is doing in our lives? So sometimes the problem is the activities themselves. Because see, the truth is, if it were not for Christ, none of us would know any. We would know each other. We wouldn't be in this room together. For those who have been here for 48 years in this church, you would not know anyone in this church other than your family if it were not for Christ. So being together just has tremendous value, but sometimes, let's just be honest, our religious activities and programs are sometimes just boring. I mean, they just, they just, they're hard, and it's the attitude that we bring to them sometimes. Sometimes we know that we have another church event, so we're long faced. We'd rather watch a football game, but we're gonna feel guilty if we don't go, you know. And so we go, and this is how we are. And we can't wait till it's over. I wish the hamburgers were done a little sooner, uh, but the grill broke. It's not our fault. <laughs> we just want to uh, save ourselves there, and we just we come with this attitude, like like it's just like this is us. Is this is—we're just here now. Some of this—this this may be you on Sundays, and you know, I get that. Get a nap, man. Get a nap. But—but but we get to get, and that's—and so we wonder what, why? Why don't people come? Well, because we're singing kumbaya all the time. Nothing wrong with that. But we gotta do it every time. Or maybe you know, we we walk around because there's something we gotta do. First guy I ever led to the Lord was an old fraternity brother of mine. It was—I uh, was a stockbroker at the time, and he was very wealthy. This brother, and he had it all. He had it all, and uh, we were real close friends, and he started to realize that he didn't have it all, and I was, being a stockbroker, I was managing his portfolio, uh, his millions of dollars in assets, and because I had relationships with him and saw the misery in his life, I was able to start talking to him about Jesus, and so he started considering life in Jesus, and then he gave his life to Jesus. And then the first church service he ever came to with me after he gave his life to Christ, because he didn't go to church before that. We brought him to Jesus first, then the church. He sat in the church service, and he looked at me as the preacher was preaching and said, and the preacher, was, I mean, he was going off, man. He was preaching the Bible. He was, he was, I mean, you know, going off, like, right, you know, hellfire and brimstone stuff, just rocking the, the place, scaring us all to death. And um, this, this brother sits there, and he, and he leans over, and he says, what do Christians do for fun? I'm like, dude, valid question. Because for this brother, fun was a whole different kind of fun. But it made me think, what in the world do Christians do for fun? Oh, we get together for devotionals and fellowship meals. Nothing wrong with that. But let's step out of our church bubbles just for a minute and see how much fun that is for the person who could get a fellowship meal at Golden Corral. And who can have devotionals in some other context if that's what they wanted? I'm just saying, not not judging, not judging. I'm a part. I'm part of it too. And I was thinking about this, and and you know what we started doing? We started having card nights, and we started just having fun. And then he started coming to our extra things, which was very important because he had lived in the world all his life. And he had a whole different set of friends and he was now in the community of faith. But he, you know, devotionals and fellowship meals, life was more to that, more to him than that. And we kept that too, don't get me wrong, but we started doing fun things. We started being together just to be together. And lo and behold, he met his wife in that environment. And now he's married, he's a Christian man with a Christian wife, they serve the Lord. But when he asked me what do Christians do for fun, I wondered... Don't get me wrong. I really enjoy being together. I enjoy fellowship meals, clearly. I uh, enjoy devotionals, clearly. Um, I think it's all very important. But the aim of our religious gatherings and activities should be celebration. It should be to lead us into deeper joy. See, that's what we mean, celebration. It should be to lead us into deeper joy. The aim of everything we do should land on this idea that we celebrate God, what He's done, what He is doing, and what He's going to do. And when we get together to be together, just to be together, to celebrate God just for who He is, we find ourselves stronger when we find ourselves in the seasons of suffering. We know that the rain's going to come, and it's going to pound the house away, right? Wise man, Foolish man. We know the rain. The rain came to both. The question is, what kind of foundation are we building our lives upon? And it's not just the word of God. It's also part embedded in the word of God is a sense of having joy in our lives. is this sense of celebration. And if we never come together just to be together, just to celebrate, just to have a good time and it really be a good time, then we're always going to be a disconnected people who, when the rains come, struggle to find their joy See, this has always been the purpose for God's people. It's always been the purpose of celebrations in the life of Israel. When you look at the life of Israel and you think about the festivals and the feasts that God commanded them to have, these were seasonal and yearly festivals. The point of these festivals was to bring them to remembrance as to what God had done so that they could celebrate what God had done so that they would have a hope for the future. And look at these festivals. They were rhythmic God commanded these festivals to be rhythmic. They were every season of every year of every life. So there wasn't a season that went by that God's people did not get together in a festival or some sort of feast and have a big old party. Some of these festivals and feasts lasted three days. Some of them lasted seven days. Now that's a fall kickoff for you right there, right? I mean, you imagine a seven-day fall kickoff? What in the world would we do? That's part of the problem. We don't know. They knew what they would do. With these festivals, there were prayers, and there were scripture, but there was also singing, and yes, there was also dancing. There was partying. There was all of these beautiful times together, and they celebrated God based on the purpose of the festival, whether it was the festival of harvest, whether it was the festival of weeks, whether it was the festival of tabernacles. It was all to lead to two things. Remember who God is, and man, that's... worth celebrating this has always been in the life of god's people until now until now and see what you find is when god's people were obedient to the lord with these festivals they were a unified people because celebration brings us together celebration gives us hope Celebration reminds us that no matter how bad this life gets, there is a better life to come. Celebration, I wonder if it's something that we lack. And we need it not just once every now and then, we need it rhythmically in our lives. Rhythmically. Sets so a pattern of celebration in our lives. See, I've come to believe that Jesus values celebration and fine wine over religious doings. And you can disagree. And I've got a story for you. After all, when I remember the festivals and I remember what they are, I have to believe that Jesus celebrates, celebrates and values celebration, even over religious activities, as we know them. See, this morning we'll find Jesus at a wedding and while a wedding is a big event in the life of a bride and groom and their families and, and in fact in the first century a Jewish community, the wedding is not where you would expect at this time to actually have an encounter with God. That's not where you go to get God. You don't go to get God at a wedding. For Some of you, you might go to get girlfriends or boyfriends or celebrate, but you don't go to get God at a wedding. And especially with the different images of God that we hold dear. The God who, who has the big beard, who sits on this big throne, who's sort of at a distance for us and just commands us or, or maybe dangles us over the pit of eternal damnation or whatever the case may be. We have these images of God, this beautiful, holy God that we do talk a lot about here. And so if you're here for the first time, we talk a lot about God being holy here. Uh, and, and inside of that holiness, though, is this beautiful Jesus at a wedding, and so, the story of Jesus in the wedding at Cana is not something you'd expect, and maybe for some of us makes it a little nervous. Because for some of us, the story of a man in Cana may seem a bit irreverent. And so this Jesus is a man who laughs, and he's a man who goes to parties, and he's a man who enjoys good food and conversation and the company of his friends, and he sits with uh, the, the beggars, and he sits with the tax collectors, and he sits with the prostitutes, and he sits with the rich, and he sits with the poor, and he sits with the religious and the irreligious. This Jesus shares a table with humanity, and he shares a table with humanity because he simply enjoys humanity. And he wants humanity to enjoy him. See, this Jesus is one who transforms lives from day to day, even in the ordinary experiences like a wedding. And so we read this story and we find Jesus giving us a glimpse. And don't lose this. Giving us a glimpse of the character and nature of God even here. See, we can't pick and choose the stories we like in Scripture. This is a story in Scripture to show us also who God is like. And it's in a wedding. It's at a party. And Jesus has a role to play. John chapter 2, verse 2. On the third day, a wedding took place in Cana of Galilee. This is a small village. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding as well. (laughs) When the wine ran out, and this was legitimate wine, this was real wine, this wasn't unfermented. I mean this was real wine. I, I, you may have had people try to explain that the way but historically speaking, and I'll give you all my sources if you like, this is real wine. And really the story tells you it was real wine because they were all, well, they were all drunk. Jesus' mother told him, "They don't have any wine." "What has this concern of yours to do with me, woman?" Jesus asked. "My hour has not yet come." Mommy isn't listening and says, do whatever he tells you, she says to the servants. Now, six stone water jars had been set there for Jewish purification. These are religious ceremonial jars for religious ceremony only. And they were stone, the highest quality you could find. Stone because stone would not... Uh, keep the infections or keep the diseases that might come from the witcher washings. That's why the stone matters there. Each contained 20 or 30 gallons of water. Or each contained 20 or 30 gallons. So Jesus says, fill the jars with water, verse 7. So they filled them to the brim. Then he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the chief servant. And they did. And they poured it out. When the chief servant which every wedding had a chief servant who was supposed to actually be the wedding coordinator, when the chief servant tasted the water after it had become wine, the text says, he did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. He called the groom and told him, everyone sets out the fine wine first, the good stuff, when everyone's good and sober. They set out the fine wine first. And then after the people are drunk or have drunk freely, the cheaper wine is brought out. But you... You have kept the fine wine until now. Verse 11, Jesus performed this first sign in Cana of Galilee. He displayed his glory and his disciples believed in him. See, in Jewish tradition, weddings lasted as long as seven days. Now, that's a long wedding. Not a one-day deal with a two-hour reception that we can't wait for it to be over. This is a seven-day event. And after the ceremony, all the guests would go to the reception... And they would party for days where the bride and groom was expected to provide food and drink for all their guests. And wine was an important part of the celebration because it was the beverage of choice for festive celebrations in the ancient world abundant wine was a symbol of the new age to come, even in Jewish thought. So in Old Testament Scripture, abundant wine is spoken of because it's the symbol of this profound new age to come that God is going to bring the best of the best and the choicest of the choice into the life of his people. So wine had symbolism to the Jew, but it had ultimate symbolism for the culture. And if one ran out of wine or food, Before the celebration was over, it was a social disaster. It was a huge embarrassment. And it would also be a superstition that this marriage that just happened isn't going to end well. And so it would have been a sham and a shame if this couple would have run out of wine. So Jesus' mother, grasping the seriousness of the situation, asked Jesus to help. And then instructs the servants to do as Jesus says. And even though Jesus acknowledges that his time had not yet come, Jesus chooses to change the reality of the situation. Jesus doesn't stand back idle and say, well, it's not convenient for me yet. He chooses to have compassion on these people, seeing what's at stake, and he acts and then performs the first miraculous sign of his ministry. The first. The first miraculous sign of Jesus is at a party. And he transforms this water into wine, and he reveals himself as the Son of God to his disciples, and they become believers. And what's amazing to me in this story is that Jesus doesn't change just a few small jars of water into wine. And he doesn't just give them so-so wine. He gives them an abundance of the finest wine. Jesus is about abundance, church. He takes six large jars, specifically created for rituals. The best jars money can buy that hold 20 to 30 gallons of water and produces 120 to 180 gallons of the finest wine. We're talking serious, serious coin, serious money this wine wouldn't have cost. So he not only saves the broom and the bride and the family and makes them just look okay, he <laughs> makes them look fantastic. And he doesn't just do enough to get by Jesus. He does more than enough. An interesting thing about this is John and his gospel seems to go out of his way to prove to us that Jesus is about abundance. Remember the four and five thousand. Remember how Jesus takes five loaves and two fish and feeds over five thousand people, and then remember has twelve baskets of leftovers. Abundance. Remember he meets a woman at the water of the well, and she talks about water, and Jesus talks about living water, abundance. Remember Jesus in John 10.10 said, I came to have life and life in its abundance. Jesus is about being more than enough. Not just enough. Not just someone to be experienced once a week. But more than enough. And not only that, Jesus' abundance is about quality. He's always been about quality. He takes a huge crowd of fans. Remember in John 6? A huge crowd of fans. I mean, he's got a following. He's got a mega church. You know, he's being written up, largest growing church in America kind of deal. I mean, mega church. All these people. And Jesus preaches the word. And all of these people decide to leave because what Jesus is saying is too hard. And then he is left with quality disciples who, by the way, change the world. So he's not just about abundance. He's about quality and abundance. I've got to believe that the bread and the, and the fish probably tasted pretty good. And he had quality abundance because he produced the finest of wines. Not just the cheap stuff. And I don't think this is reading into the text of all. Because when you look at the text, this text remarkably lacks detail. It doesn't tell you anything about what weddings are culturally. It doesn't tell you many details at all. But the details it does tell are very interesting. Because it does mention that these are stone jars not clay jars, that they are ritual jars, not just any kind of use jars. These are expensive jars. And so I've been wondering, what is Jesus trying to tell us? Now, I think this story implicitly asks a couple of questions, and I want to ask them to you. What if God wanted to turn our religious activity into celebration and joy? What if God wants to turn our religious activity into something that's celebratory, something that expresses the joy of God? Something that embraces the joy of God. Something that moves our souls, not just so we can leave feeling like we came to a spiritual pep rally, but something that's just deeper than that. Because Jesus takes these religious activity driven jars and uses them for something that should have been a religious no no. What if Jesus wants to do the same for us and we're the ones saying no? Because if I would have been a good Pharisee, I would have looked at Jesus and said, Jesus, you don't use these stolen jars for that. We have other jars for that. These are for ritual cleansing, Jesus. I wonder if we'd tell Jesus that if he walked in. Now, Jesus, we don't act that way around here. Put your hands down. What if Jesus wants to take our ordinary lives and turn it into wine? What if Jesus wants to take your long, sad face or your depressing view of Christianity, your utterly depressing view of Christianity, and turn it into wine, turn it into celebration, turn it into something more? People look at me all the time, and they're like, Fred, you know, you're, you're this passionate guy, and, and I get that, I am a passionate guy, but I mean, look, I, I get, there's nothing I get more passionate about than Jesus. I don't talk like this to Allison. Could you imagine what it'd be like if I talked like this to us? I bought this shirt the other day. I mean, I don't. I don't do that. Like my voice is loud. Ian would cry all the time. I'd scare him to death. I mean, I'm loud enough as it is. I get passionate about Jesus because of who He is. What if Jesus wants to turn our ordinary, depressing views of church and depressing views of Christianity and turn it into something worth celebrating? That even Kathy Poe will say in the middle of a service out loud, "Jesus is King." Yes! I mean, what's wrong with that? That's not how we do it around here. See, we're often about the minimum sometimes. I think we're often about the minimum. We do just what's good enough. I mean, sometimes we live out our faith just enough to get by. We conduct just enough of, of, of religious activity. It's just, it's just good enough. We, we take that road and we say, you know, I'm going to come to church and we'll take the Lord's Supper and we'll give to the church. And I'm going to take in a sermon, take in some songs, and I'm going to go about my life. I'm not going to fall kickoff. I'm not going to Bible study. I'm not going to the party. I'm not going to retreat. I'll see all those folks next week because those folks don't know how to have fun anyway. And so I'm just going to come there. We do just enough. We do just enough. And i got to tell you, I was reminded that Christianity is so much better than Just Enough yesterday when I saw our church family, people I love, talking together, some playing volleyball, some better than others, and some just having a good time together, enjoying one another. And then the best part for me was seeing, like, I don't know, I didn't count the kids, but all of those kids playing together. I mean, Ian's kicking a soccer ball with Grayson. They're all running around and having a great time, laughing and cutting up. Ian and Eli locked themselves in the men's bathroom, hiding from Bren and Joey, and they think it's a funny joke. Britt has to come in there with her mean mama voice to get them all out. I mean, it's just this, but it's this beautiful, fun thing. They're running all over places they shouldn't be, messing with stuff. And and I just think, "That's, that's, that's beautiful, that's good. That's good. Why is that not good? And that happened on a Saturday night. Not on a Sunday morning. This happens on a Sunday morning. That happened on a Saturday night. See, it's a slow tragedy to buy into a depressing version of Christianity that moves you to do just enough. So I want to speak specifically to our worship gathering just for a moment. I want to caveat some things. I am a charismatic in a (coughs) seatbelt. Here's what I mean. When I worship to God, I don't raise my hands. That's just not who I am. I'm not a big clapper. I'm a little bit of a swayer. I get my groove just a little bit. I'll do this. All right, I got it. I feel it right here. And, but I don't, I don't really, you can ask, I mean, they, they, they don't do anything. They just watch me. You know, that, that's, I, I, that's not who I am. All right, that, but that's who some of you are. So why don't you do it? If Jesus is worth celebrating, just do it. Don't worry about what John's gonna think. If John's thinking about you while he's worshiping, he's not thinking about the one he's supposed to be worshiping in the first place. If that's distracting John, then John's mind isn't set on the throne. It's set on you. And that's John's bad. Just let yourself go. 2 weeks ago, 3 weeks ago, 2 weeks ago, we had a brother come first service. I met with him for lunch, great brother, loves the Lord. He has a ministry to the homeless in New York. After the sermon, during the invitation song, he was compelled to fall on his knees right there. And then before the song was over, he was on his face before the Lord. So I get a text from one of our lovely, lovely people in the church. And this lovely, lovely person says, I loved what happened there. I loved that that brother felt that free to just worship the Lord. And so I responded back and said, pray that God break us down and that he can have his way with us, whatever that looks like. So last Sunday, this brother comes for the first time ever and he comes because he meets the group at Envoy to worship. And he loves how they lead worship at Envoy, the uh, nursing home here in town that we do once a month that we serve. And he comes ready to worship. And he comes. Are right, you ready for this? After I had this text conversation with this person and said, let's pray that God break us down. He comes and he brings a tambourine with him. So I'm worshiping and I hear, And I'm looking at Rusty on the drums. He's not hitting the cymbals. I'm looking over here wondering what's going on. And there our brother is. As honestly and as humbly. And on rhythm, thankfully. (laughs) Thankfully. Just got to say it. He's just worshiping the Lord. And we had some slow songs last week. So it's kind of funny. Because you could tell he wanted to light it up. But he wouldn't. was like... You know, I wonder what the Lord is doing. I'm not advocating craziness. And if you think I am, then you don't know me. I'm not advocating that. I'm advocating what I think Scripture advocates freedom to celebrate, wherever you are, even at work, even in your neighborhood, even in your own home. When's the last time you told your wife, Praise the Lord! When's the last time you said that to your family or to your kids? You want to, but the words sound a little too religious for you? But you want to, but it just sounds too churchy? See, that's what we think. Religious things happen in churchy contexts. So kumbaya and devotionals. Not in the workplace. Not at home. I am suggesting that we have a Jesus who went to a party. And who didn't just go to a party. He participated in the party. Because that's what Jesus does. He takes what is old and what is stale. What is dilapidated and what is broken. What is mundane and what is plain. Water. And he turns it into wine. He turns what is stale into something beautiful something vibrant. He turns what is plain into something pretty. He turns something that is broken and mundane and boring into something exciting and celebratory, and yet we walk around as though we have no reason to celebrate, and I wonder if maybe we just don't understand the signs. So I want to give you just a little bit of theology here. See, signs that happen in the Bible, the miracles, there's a lot of things that these do, but what these miracles ultimately do is they show that these are moments when heaven and earth connect in a way that heaven and earth has never connected before. And so when Jesus turns water into wine, he is telling his disciples that God is present. And when God is present, he turns water into wine. He takes what is ordinary and turns it into extraordinary. He takes what is plain and he turns it into something vibrant and beautiful. And it's this heaven and and it opens up and the power of God's love moves in and it bursts into the present and a new reality is formed. A reality where we're running out of wine turns into a reality where we have too much. Jesus brings in his person what the Jews believed only happened in the temple. See, for the Jew, they only thought that earth and heaven met in the temple. That's what the Jew thought. This is at a wedding. See, the Jews thought that the heaven and earth only connected in religious environments. This is at a wedding. Heaven and earth meets anywhere that God is present. And guess where God is always present? Where his people are present. Whereas people are present. And this is the first sign, and it's one of many, and it shatters conventional explanations and expectations. Maybe that's why it's the first sign. I'm not trying to read much into this. I'm just saying maybe this is why it's the first sign. And by the way, look at the text just for a minute, because there's also lots of little signs in the sign. Because Jesus turns water into wine. He, 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 he tells the people implicitly through this miracle, the ones who knew about it, or explicitly through this miracle, that this is a moment when heaven changes earth in the present. Look at the text. What day did this happen? What does the text say specifically? That's a question. What text? The third day. What else happened on the third day? <laughs> Jesus rose. He turned water into wine in a whole new way. He ushered in a whole new reality and a whole new kingdom. He took what was plain, mundane, and broken and gave it life. I think there's a reason why John decides, of all the details he left out, to give us this little bitty, tidy detail. I think Jesus wants us to know something. So let's bring this thing to a close. See, there's something significant about the story when it comes to joy and celebration. And it teaches, church, how celebration and joy takes place. Because maybe you're convinced that we need to celebrate more together, that we need to throw better parties, that we need to enjoy life in Christ better in our workplaces and homes. Maybe you're convinced, and so you're wondering, where's the how? Here's the how. Verse 5, do whatever he tells you. His mother told the servants, So they did it. Six stone water jars had been set there for Jewish purification. Each contained 20 or 30 gallons. Fill the jars with water, Jesus told them, and they did that. And then he said, then thou draw some out and take it to the chief servant, and they did. See, here's the truth. And I'm asking you please to hear me, all of you. The key to experiencing celebration and joy is this. Do what Jesus says. Do what he says. If the servants had not done what Jesus said, there would have been no one. If at any point in the time, they would have decided not to do what Jesus said because A, it seemed absurd, B, it did not make sense, and I have to believe those stone jars were heavy, and it was radically inconvenient, and maybe a whole other thing. If they had not done what Jesus said, there would have been no celebration and joy. If you are not willing to obey Jesus when it is inconvenient or when it might even cost you something, then don't expect celebration and joy in your life. And that is my least favorite part of the message. Because that's not something we're celebrating. Sin, rebellion, disobedience, it's not something we're celebrating. See, Jesus' words, His teaching, and His power... Comes from the Creator. Jesus is the Creator of life, and if He created life, then He knows best how it is actually lived, regardless of what the world says. And so when Jesus speaks, He speaks for our good, for our good. He commands for our good. So we can do as he says and trust him and experience a life even when it's absurd and even when it's hard and even when it seems ridiculous because there's no way Jesus is going to turn water into wine in this scenario. When Jesus teaches, when he says love your enemies, when he says pray for those who persecute you, when he says forgive those who've wronged you, when he says go the extra mile, not just one because one is sort of convenient, go the extra one because it's not convenient. When he says don't live a life of sexual immorality, when he says don't give in to drunkenness, when he says don't treat your wife this way or your husband this way your children this way and when he says honor God for he's holy he says these things because he does it for our good and when we choose to not listen to him and then we wonder why our lives are long faced and joyless the reason it is is because of disobedience and that needs to be repented of and let go at the cross let it down at the cross the finished work of Jesus is more than enough to cover your sin and come out rejoicing that the God of heaven and earth has come to you. But when we don't experience joy and celebration, for some of us, it could be because of our disobedience. See, James said this. James 1.22, be doers of the word, not hearers only, because if you are just hearers, you deceive yourselves. If you come to church service and you say, man, that was the best sermon I ever heard, best song I ever prayed, but then you play it, or, or whatever the case may be, and you leave and your life doesn't change, then you have tragically deceived yourself. He says, because if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man looking at his own face in a mirror. For he looks at himself, hears the word of God, Sees the reality of God, the love of God. Then he goes away and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. He forgets God. He forgets the love of God. He forgets the value of Christ. The celebration and the joy, the inexhaustible God is yours. He forgets that. But the one who looks intently in the perfect law of, what's the word? Freedom. And what perseveres in it is not a forgetful hearer, but one who does good works. This person will be blessed. Bless is another word for, anybody know? Happy. Joyful. Not happy as in like giddy happy. Because life can be hard sometimes. But joyful, deep abiding satisfaction, joy. He walks away with joy in what he does. See, the key is not perfection. It's perseverance. It's faithfulness. Faithfulness is not never messing up or never sinning. Faithfulness is, when I do sin, I choose not to do it again. I don't go back to where I've come. My obedience leads to joy, and then my obedience becomes my joy, because Jesus is my joy. See, but many of you, many of you don't understand this. And See, God loves you too much. He loves you too much to think that you have joy when you don't. He loves you too much to just let you go into your own life without seeing the life he offers. And so God will let us feel the weight of that sin like he did King David. He will let it become weight to our bones so that it will get our attention, we'll repent, we'll renounce, and then he'll restore us to the joy of our salvation. If you're treating your wife like an ungodly man, don't expect joy and celebration to come your way. Wives, if you're treating your husband like an ungodly woman, don't expect joy and celebration to come your way. If you're living life in a relationship in a way that doesn't bring honor to God, don't expect joy and celebration to come your way. But if you let any of these things go and pursue the one, pursue the one who knows you best and loves you most despite your sin, Expect joy and celebration to come your way. See, some of you feel as though you have very little to celebrate right now. Because life is just hard. You didn't get the news you wanted. You're having a hard time figuring out how you're going to make the rent. Maybe the children are going crazy. Maybe the spouse has been unfaithful and left you. Maybe you just can't seem to get a job. And you feel as though you have nothing to celebrate. And I'm asking you not to miss the sign this morning. When all else has failed and the wine is gone, give Jesus what you have. No matter how small, no matter how empty, no matter how big, give Him what you have and trust Him. And somehow, some way, He will turn water into wine. When his disciples thought he was dead and there was no hope, he turned water into wine. He's done it for 2,000 years. He's not going to stop now. See, it's like Paul said in Romans, verse 8, or chapter 8, verse 28. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. It may not work out the way you expect it. It may not work out the way you prefer it. It may not work out the way you hoped it would. But because of Jesus, it will work out for good, even if it means eternity with Jesus, which is better than life without Him. He says, for those who are called according to His purpose, even in your doubts, please hear me, even in your doubts, trust God's love for you. Even in your fears, trust his love for you. He loves you. He will not let you go. Do not know how, do not know when, do not know what, but he will not let you go. Rest in his love. So the choice is ours. You and I can leave here today, not as individuals, two levels, as a community, as a church, or as individuals, and we can choose the cheap wine or the fine wine. I choose to find one. I couldn't resist this picture. because This is how I feel right now. Yes. This should be who we are. Let's leave today as a people who know how to celebrate. As a people who know how to live life with joy. And even if your heart is heavy and you don't feel like dancing, then don't dance. Mourn. But just know that God will turn your mourning into dancing. leave today experiencing the joy of Jesus and if you've got disobedience in your life then leave it at the cross and walk away with the joy of Jesus and celebrate in church in the name of all that is good and holy let us be a people who learn how to celebrate and throw good parties let's be a people who enjoy God and enjoy one another much more than just on a Sunday and if you want to raise your hands clap your hands you want to shout Jesus as king or you want to fall to your face in tears. You just be you before holy God and let him turn your water into wine. And we will be better for it because that's who Jesus is. Let's pray.